0: I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. I recently came across uh, like an online forum where people can post about uh, Buddhism. And it's one of those online forums where people can post anonymously, you know, they can ask their questions anonymously and people can answer anonymously. And I was taking a look at, you know, the kind of questions being asked and the kind of answers that were being given and getting a feel of what kind of community had formed there. And I got a sense that uh, it seemed like The community was predominantly a lot of young men, maybe some young women and, and, you know, might even be some some non-binary people there, but it seemed to be mostly young men with an interest in Buddhism, but not an interest in necessarily being a Buddhist. And what I mean by that is the kind of person that would come to a temple and practice and engage in conversations with the people in the community, whether they be monastic or lay. It seemed like the kind of people who go to the texts, the polycanon, read it on their own, try to apply it on their own, and then when they come across something they don't understand go to a community like this and post a question to strangers and hoping that they get a good answer. And in my eyes that seems like um, at best uh, a not very good way of of going about practicing the dharma you know i can see going online and posting to random strangers a question on where to get the best pizza in la well when something is as important as the dharma certainly when we apply it to our lives when it becomes a way of life that we're adopting it might not be the best case to just ant- like put it out there to the world and whoever answers answers you know And I did look at some of the answers to some of the questions I saw on there and some of the answers were actually very good, but I noticed that they didn't get a whole lot of votes. Some questions, some answers were not so good and I noticed they got a lot of upvotes. People seem to like those ones and I thought it was weird. What kind of community is forming there? And there are a couple kind of questions that I I wanna focus on today, but before that, I I wanted to look at this community and, and tell you what it reminded me of. Some of you already know that I've been working for a while now on my PhD. And in one of the classes I've been in, we've been looking at how uh, modern Buddhism has developed in Asia and in the West, in Europe, and America. And one of the things that we've noticed in our exploration is how Buddhism first became known to the West. And the way it became known is, to me, a very interesting way. You had these Western scholars going into India, going into Nepal, and going into a place where Buddhism had been in decline for a really long time. You know, they weren't going to places where there were huge, thriving Buddhist communities. They were going to places where there were a lot of abandoned temples, abandoned monasteries. And they would also find the texts. In this case, they found the Pali Canon. And so you had these Westerners without very much knowledge of Buddhism going to somewhere like India and seeing a thriving Hindu community with all the different gods and animal heads and all these things that struck a lot of these Protestant intellectuals as very strange. And then they go to these abandoned temples and they find it nice and cool and serene and empty. And there's the Buddha statue right there for people to enjoy and look at. And they go, ah, now see this is This is the the path, the spirituality of an intellectual, right? And then they open the text and start reading the Pali Canon. And they're looking through this particular lens. They're looking at it as, you know, intellectual Protestants, a lot of them deists, and they look at the at the texts and the derived various meanings. And they look at it and go, ah, this what it this is what it means to be disenchanted. This is what it means to have dispassion. They go, ooh, you know, and in some cases they look at Buddhism in an unfavorable way, that it's this uh, cold and, and hard religion that's about abandoning everything, abandoning everyone, it's uh it's a nihilistic path, and so on. And then you have these others that look at it perhaps more favorably, but they still think of it as this very stoic endeavor, this very world-denying path, and so on. And then the history of it continues, you know, that they come across Mahayana traditions, they come across other Theravada traditions and other parts of you know, South Asia where there were still really big communities and rather than going, oh, okay, well now we maybe we'll have, we'll perhaps clear up what it means to be a Buddhist because now we're actually coming across living Buddhists who have been Buddhists for hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases. And what struck me as kind of funny is that these Westerners, after studying alone, just reading texts a, and looking at archaeological sites, go to these places like in Sri Lanka And then begin telling Sri Lankans, you know, you're actually practicing Buddhism really wrong. It's actually like this. And they go in and do what we would contemporarily call mansplaining. They just go in there and tell them how they should really be practicing. You know, you guys are actually doing this all wrong. And so seeing that kind of thing happen in history, I look at this web forum and I see something a bit similar. Which is something like people coming to dry texts and thinking that's the same thing as practicing or thinking that's the same thing as being in a community with people more advanced in the path who can help you along. Elder you know, brothers and sisters in the Dharma that can be kalyanamita, spiritual friends, admirable friends. Instead, they're just trying to do this all on their own. And then when they do stumble, they ask a, like, like a crowded bus of people and hoping for a good answer. So there were two kinds of questions that, that stood out to me. As oh, this is this is something that would be worth talking about, worth addressing, because it did strike me as this. This is a very uh, American issue. This is very much a this is a a, a a white Protestant coming to the Dharma issue, which of course revolved around relationships, romantic relations relationships in particular. Here were these young men asking their questions. One guy is like, "Hey, you know, I have a girlfriend and." You know, she's wanting to use all this loving language, like, I love you, and you're special to me, and all this, and it's just, you know, it seems like so much attachment, it seems like so much, you know, dependency on another and everything, it's just, oh, I don't, you know, I don't think I can really use that that language with her, it just sounds so much like being a, a worldly person caught up in desires and stuff, you know, what do I do, you know? And then on the other side of that, someone perhaps a bit older, or just, you know, a little more deeply involved in a relationship. You know, I, I'm married and I've noticed that, you know, my wife wants to have sex sometimes, you know, and it brings up a lot of feelings of lust in me. And I'm like, well, I would hope so. But, you know, there's all this lust happening and I noticed that like the more that we have, the more lust is going. And so there's all these kind of questions with these people legitimately grappling with something really big. Because when you do read the text, the Buddha does talk about disenchantment. He does talk about dispassion. He talks about abandoning sensual desire and sensuality in general. So, yes, there is that. But I think back to those Western scholars who, upon meeting real Buddhists, thought, this is weird. They seem way too happy. They seem way too lively, enjoying their communities. A lot of them are married. A lot of them have kids. This doesn't track. So I look back at these people at this forum and I see a lot of people that don't know what it is that they want to be or how they want to be. Are they trying to be monks? Are they trying to be lay people? How are they trying to navigate their life? What are they trying to do? Because it's clear that they want to be renunciants, but how they're going about this renunciation, I can't help but worry for them. Not just them, but their partners and not just their partners, but their friends, and not just their friends, but their parents, not just their parents, but their children, and so on. Because the kind of concerns they're bringing up is, even though it revolves around this issue of renunciation, and although it revolves around this issue of of being non-attached, I don't think that that's quite what the Buddha had in mind. For those of us living as lay people, to stress about it, in such a regard. And one of the reasons why I brought up the whole idea of being a, a, a Protestant in this, in this regard is because just because of what I know about Christianity in general. You know, I grew up in a Catholic household, so I'm very familiar with Catholic guilt. But I have also known a lot of Protestants who are very concerned with whether or not they're doing something pleasing to God and pleasing to their elders and pleasing to their community very much concerned with right and wrong. As Buddhists, we're also concerned with being right or good or skillful, but it tends to have a different flavor. I've noticed that a lot of Christians talk about temptation. And so I noticed that flavor in the questions these guys were asking. Notice that even though they're talking about stuff like disenchantment and dispassion, and they're talking about not wanting to have all this lust, it tends to be outwardly focused, you know? My girlfriend is doing this, my wife is doing that. And we can also extend it the other way around. It could be husband doing this, partner doing this, whatever, it's still outwardly focused. The temptations of the world, they're just there minding their own business as perfect Buddhists and the world is impeding on them. But that's not really the way the Buddha looked at it. You know, when we talk about hindrances and when we talk about defilements in Buddhism, when we get down to the the real core of it, we find another term, you know, which means, uh, which is asava or effluence. The idea that what it is that we're dealing with, what it is that we're training ourselves to improve upon are really things that are not impacted by the world, but actually reach out to the world. The idea of an effluent is that it flows outward. Our minds are the ones that are reaching out and seeking delight. It's not so much that the world is tempting us to be delighted. Yesterday I I heard a a story that I think illustrates this pretty well. I I heard this story that there was a a study done that involved uh, pigeons, right? And they got a a male pigeon and put it in uh, an enclosure with a female pigeon And the male pigeon sees the female pigeon, looks at the female pigeon, and after some time starts doing its mating dance, you know, wants to get it on. Like, the the scientist doing the study thought, oh, this is interesting. Let's remove the female pigeon and put a male pigeon in there. And so the original male pigeon's still in there. They put another male pigeon in there. Original male pigeon looks around, sees the male pigeon, and it takes a bit longer. But eventually he's like, well, he starts doing his mating dance. And the scientists are like, wow, this is pretty interesting. Well, uh, let's take it further. And it starts getting more and more abstract. And so the way I I heard the story yesterday is that at some point they even put just a red ball in in the enclosure with the male pigeon. And it did take a bit longer, but eventually the male pigeon is just looking at the red ball and goes, well, okay. And then starts doing his mating dance. And eventually they decided to take everything out of the room. And so the male pigeon's now in the enclosure by himself. And he turns to one corner of the enclosure and wouldn't you know it, starts doing his maiden dance. Right? There's nothing there for him to, to want to be attracted to. It's just him wanting to be attracted. Right? So in examining our own minds, we are looking for what it is that entices us. What it is that makes us do the things that we do that might be considered unskillful. The Buddha told us that when we sit down to to meditate, when we're investigating the mind, there are certain things that we do. When we're meditating and, and various things come up in the mind, we look for their origination, and we look for their cessation. We then look for their allure, and try to understand the allure. Know what it is about the thing that, that, that is alluring to us. And this comes for an, any perception, any fabrication, any feeling. You know, even the feeling that, of anger that arises, especially righteous anger. You can look at the allure and see, you know, this isn't just something that you, you don't like. There's something about the anger that when you're given into it, ooh, it kind of feels good. Something about it, especially when we get to be righteous about it. That's, the, that's sometimes one of our favorite kinds of anger, I think, as a society. We like to have something to be mad about that we can feel good about being mad about. I've noticed that a lot and a lot of people I've met, myself included, by the way, you know, especially when I was younger. There are those things that we feel good about being mad about, even if it's something dumb like someone cutting you off on the freeway. But there's always bigger examples, always multiple examples, hundreds, millions of examples, various ways that we can be angry and go, hmm. But it's the same thing with, with lust that comes up. The reason why these these guys are asking these kind of questions is not because they're in relationships and they don't want to be. It's because they're in relationships and they want to be, and for some reason they feel guilty about wanting to be in the relationship. So there's this complex feeling coming up. There's feelings of love, and they think that the love necessarily means attachment. It doesn't. They want to connect and, and have intimacy with their partner, and they assume that that's lust and it doesn't necessarily need to be, that requires more examination, that requires really good look, like looking at something closely, seeing the allures. And then also seeing the drawbacks, right? If we're looking at complex feelings like that, what drawbacks are there? What, what aspect of it is worth letting go? And what aspect of it can we let go of right now? Because there are probably many aspects of lust that can be well abandoned before you decide to leave your spouse and put on a robe, necessarily, right? The Buddha talks about a gradual path. That means that as we're looking at our lust, we can look at it gradually as well, look at different aspects of it. See that perhaps maybe what we're assuming is lust isn't lust. Or there are aspects of it that can be abandoned for now, and maybe not so later, and so on. And so after we've watched things originate or arise, and we've watched them pass away after we've looked at their allure and their drawbacks, if we truly understand it, truly understand the allure, truly understand the drawbacks, then we can release, we can let go. That's when the let go happens. But only after truly understanding something. Trying to let go without truly understanding usually means we don't really let go. It's like the person who's addicted to Instagram, right? And they keep deleting the app and they're good for like a couple months and then they get that itch and re-download the app, right? or they decide they're not going to go on, uh, on Facebook or something, or anything that they decide to do. They're going to give up sugar. You know, maybe they're Christian they pra- or you know, rather Catholic, they practice Lent they give it up for a while. And then Lent's over and then now it's time for the, the Dr. Pepper or the Coke or the slice of pie, or whatever. There are these things that we notice that we keep putting down and we keep picking them back up, right? So the person who crashed diets and then, gets, and then you know, goes back to how they were and then crashed diets. And there's multiple examples of the same idea. But it is the same thing of trying to force ourselves to let go of something without understanding and realizing that without anything else to rely on, we pick it back up. Without truly understanding, we pick it back up. So in terms of our our minds and in terms of our hearts, we have this aspect that's trying to truly understand what it is that we crave and what it is that we cling to and why. And then on the other hand, We try to meditate in such a way that we have a firm foundation, a place that is secure and feels good, a good place to be in the mind from which we can actually observe all these changes happening. We can observe all the arisings and passings away, the originations and the passings away. So we can meditate in such a way that we can have pleasure and and rapture born of our seclusion, born of our concentration. We have that foundation. We can look around and observe and truly understand. And in truly understanding the allures and drawbacks we can let go. And we can release. So that's the mental part. The outside part, you know, the the phys- like the physical part, the spoken part, what we you know what we say and what we do. You know, that's a different thing entirely. You know, you'll notice that uh, I'm not a, a monk. You know, the shaved head might fool you. The beard probably confuses you. The lack of robe probably makes it pretty clear. But I am someone that at this point in my life, views the Dharma as absolutely my raft. This is what gets me through life. This is the thing that I think is the most important thing in my life is me practicing this path, developing the Eightfold Path, trying to understand the Four Noble Truths, trying to perform the duties involved with each Noble Truth. And yet you'll notice I'm also someone who's married. So maybe that's why I picked out those questions in particular. Because I could see something that perhaps younger me could relate to, which was not being a monk and living a lay life with a lot of people and a lot of responsibilities and somehow being resentful of that, you know, not recognizing that, well, I had chosen to be a lay person. I could have been a monk. But then even if I had been a monk, a monk doesn't live on an island by himself. A monk is not a hermit. So this. I think, uh, gets to the, the real core of what it means to be a Buddhist, which is not what some people in the West fantasize what a Buddhist is. A Buddhist is not the sage at the mountaintop. Because if you notice the way the Buddha taught and the way his community was and the way his community still is living today, it's one that is, has this quality of, of interdependence. It has this quality of uh, in, interpersonal relationship. All of of the chatuparisa, the fourfold assembly, lives in a particular way dependent on each other, supporting each other on the path. Monks depend on the lay people. Lay people depend on the monks. You know, monks depend on other monks. They depend on the sangha. Lay people, we also have those that we depend on. We depend on our parents when we're children. When we become older and if we have romantic partners, we would depend on our romantic partners. You know, if we have children, eventually, once they're older, we depend on our children. We have friends that we depend on, extended family that we depend on. And even if you don't really have a good relationship with your family, perhaps you're the black sheep, that's something I can relate to as well, you have friends that you build that become your family, you depend on them as well. You know, this whole life that we have, we're all helping each other along. And as we become Buddhists, as lay Buddhists, we're still depending. On each other. That was something that the Buddha made very clear. I can't remember which sutta it is. It might not even be just one sutta. But it, the Buddha tells his young monks to go talk to the older monks to learn how to be a monk. And he goes and looks at the upasakas and, and upasikas and tells them the same thing. Go find another upasaka to learn from. Learn what it means to be a good upasaka. Find out what it means to be a good upasika by going, you know. So lay men, lay women, go and You know, talk to the monks too, but also talk amongst amongst each other. Find supports in that way. Learn how to live a good and skillful life. When we get to renunciation as something that we're actually putting into practice, and we start talking to these people and learn some advice from them, I think that's when we start realizing the importance of precepts. We take the five precepts on as something that guides us in our actions with others. We're making sure that not only are we not taking life, but that we're also uh, protecting life. That we're not just making sure we're not stealing, we're also learning to be generous. We're not engaging in sexual misconduct or illicit sex, but whatever we do in our sexuality as laypeople. We're making sure that it's not based in lust. It's not based solely in gratifying our, our sensuality, just looking to get our pleasure. But it's in some way more meaningful and more skillful. And that's something that we have to navigate ourselves. The hard part for a lot of us, uh, the, pr- the surprising part for a lot of us, is skillful speech. You know, when people realize how all-encompassing it is. I think that can be quite scary for some people because we live in a society that's taught us that white lies are absolutely okay. And the Buddha says that honesty is probably one of the most important things he looked at in a student, is their ability to be observant and their ability to be honest. Which means that that honesty is not just for the sake of others, it's for the sake of ourselves and it's for the sake of our practice. That's how important it is to be honest in all of our dealings. Because if you're able to lie to others, how could you possibly be honest with yourself? And if you can lie to yourself, how can you, how can you be honest with others? That's how important it is. And then of the last one, of course, dealing with intoxicants, that becomes a tricky one too, right? A lot of people wonder if they can have a little bit of alcohol or no alcohol or a little bit of drugs or what counts as drugs, what counts as medicine. But what we're really trying to avoid is heedlessness. That's what the Buddha recommended. We want a clear mind so that when we're examining our mind, we can do so without any fog, without any confusion. And that in our dealings with others and what we say and what we do, we can do so in a skillful way. We want to be heedful, making sure that what what we're doing is in accordance with the Dharma. That's the goal. Beyond that, as lay people, we're not trying to live in a cave. We're not trying to live in the forest. So I think of these young men trying to figure it out, you know, with their spouses, with their partners, and feeling all sorts of guilt around that. I find that very sad. Personally, for me, I find it sad because I feel in very many ways, being married and in choosing the partner that I did, it has made me a better Buddhist. Because I'm not just living alone in some kind of studio somewhere with no friends, just reading books by myself and, and not talking to anyone, but rather I've got this one person that in our little one bedroom apart, apartment, I see every single day. And she's a good measure on how skillful I'm being. And she'll tell me too, like, oh, you know that thing you said? And it's like, oh, okay, I'll reflect on that. And then I get to do the same thing to her. It's like, well, you know that thing you said? She's like, oh, I can see it, that, you know? And, and we've, we've built up this, this practice of two the two of us together. Me being a Buddhist, her being the way she would probably say it is Buddhist adjacent. But she all on her own came to some, some understanding separate from Buddhism. I, I met her and she was already the kind of person that didn't like to drink, didn't do drugs, didn't want to be associated with that kind of stuff, didn't want to have those kind of friends. At the time uh, I was still trying to find that balance I wasn't doing a lot of that stuff myself but then sometimes I would and then I had friends who definitely did and she was the actually the one that tried to hold me to a higher standard tried to help me to to cut those things out of my life and to eventually hold better boundaries with the people in my life whether they did that stuff or not you know it's like okay it's whatever you do my friend on your own time you're not going to do it around me or try to coerced me into doing it as well, and so on. And she's the one that that did that, helped me do that. And she was actually one of the big motivators that made me decide to go back to being a Buddhist after a period of time in my life when I stopped practicing in any real way. I wasn't meditating, I wasn't studying, I wasn't involved in any community. And it it was in my dealings with her and seeing the kind of person she was, the kind of qualities that she had, I started reflecting and thought, well, when did I feel in my life I had any of those qualities even just a little bit and it was when I was practicing Buddhism and so that I re- returned with full for- force to my practice and made it a huge part of how I interacted not just with her but with everyone in my life. And so if you ever get a chance to meet my wife, and I think many of you here have, I, you know, the, there is that, that quality that she'll say about me, it's like, look it, I have my Buddhist husband. I love my Buddhist husband. He's great and she'll pull on my chin with my beard and say, but he's not a monk, right? Which is a good reminder, because I do have those moments where it's like, well, it might be nice to be a monk. But it's also nice to be a lay person too. The Buddha had teachings for both monks and lay people. And one of the failings of someone studying all on their own and only reading the texts and not being a part of a community is they might read the stuff that was meant for monks and meant for lay people much further along in the path, who were already so close to letting go, they needed that message. Let go of everything. But the truth of the matter is, in this path, we let go in stages. We let go as it's appropriate to let go. And as we let go, we try to do so in a way that is harmless, that is blameless, that doesn't harm other people, that doesn't hurt other people. So that means that those of us living a lay life with spouses, with children with family with friends living out in this in this lay world as crazy as it might seem what we're trying to do is find the most skillful way to practice within the scope of that letting go when it's an appropriate time one of the things that i would recommend if you ever want to have a taste of this yourself a taste of renunciation is rather than trying to be like these people Letting it go entirely, even if it means you blow up a marriage or, you know, end a, end a relationship because your girlfriend says, I love you, and you don't know what to say. Like, okay, that's other stuff. But there are periods of, our, uh, of the day that we might have where we can try to find seclusion. And we really can let go of things for a time to set it down. In fact, that was the Buddha's instructions to enter into meditation. Setting aside greed and distress with reference to the world bringing mindfulness to the fore. When you sit down to meditate, or when you do walking meditation, whenever it is that you're meditating, you are setting down your responsibilities as a layperson temporarily. And that's for the mind, and that's for the heart. And then there might be days, whole days that you have, maybe once a week, maybe only once a month, where you actually could take on more precepts for a time. You don't have to do so formally. You can just keep in mind that You have these five precepts, and the one against sexual misconduct, to not do any sexual misconduct, becomes to not have any sex, to be celibate for the day. And you try not to wear a lot of perfumes or makeups or dress in any fancy way, not to use any fancy beds, cushions, chairs, and so on. You can not watch TV or listen to music and just focus on the Dharma for the day. Make yourself what I like to call sometimes on those days, the poya or oposata days, make yourself a mini monk, a mini nun, a mini mendicant. And in that way, you set aside time to practice where you are letting things go. And then you can pick them back up. And when you pick them up, do them in a skillful way. Applying your mindfulness, applying your ardency and alertness, all these good qualities, our discernment, our ingenuity. Remember that this path, even if you were to just try to go off and Live in the forest is one of interdependence. You'd be in the forest and then you'd start getting hungry. And maybe you can forage, but maybe you have to find some village and ask for food. Maybe you go off into the forest, but at some point you're going to need to clothe yourself. And you're going to realize that your clothes are getting patchy and thin. You're going to go off from the forest and find out that you're getting sick. You're going to need medicine. And you're probably not a doctor. I know I'm not. You're going to need shelter. And shelter is hard to build only on your own. You usually need a lot of help. And so that's looking at it in a very pragmatic way. But it's also important to remember that the Buddha said that this life that we cultivate, this path that we cultivate, is not one done in isolation. He talked about admirable friendship as being the whole of the holy life. And in part, he was talking about teachers and more senior monks and more senior lay people, But he was also just talking about the communities that we live in, the connections that we make. It's not bad to have those those do not count as attachments unless the attachment's happening here, unless it becomes something that you cling to and hold on to in a way that becomes detrimental to the path and detrimental to the qualities that you're developing. So in practicing the Dhamma, we always keep this in mind, practicing the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma. That means that if everything is alignment with what the Buddha had to say about sila and conduct, if everything we do is actually helping improve the mind, then it's skillful, right? For lay people it's skillful to have partners, it's skillful to have children, it's skillful to have a job and have friends. It's what you do with it and how you do it, how you interact with all of those things and all those people, all those situations. That's what determines whether you've turned that aspect of your life into a path factor, turned it into a part of your development, made it into something that actually helps you flourish and grow, cultivate, so that the good seeds of your kamma, the good seeds of your merit are sprouting and those are the ones you get to benefit on. Those become your food and nourishment to help propel you even further into the path to, to a point where it becomes much easier to let go of the unskillful things. And it's only at the end of the path that we get, let go of the raft entirely. While we're still going to the further shore, whatever it is that we have as our raft, build of all this good that we do, we're holding on to it for dear life. All of the sticks and twigs and... Twine that we're using to hold this raft together—that's what we hold on to. That's something that's secure and we can rely on. And that can very well be our partners. It's certainly been my case in my practice. So that's all I've got to say today. All my talk there. Thank you.